The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Good morning, everybody. If you caught online, I mentioned I had a video to make an announcement today and maybe you're here and you're like, hey, there's an announcement, that's really cool. And uh, just want you to know the announcement is that there is no announcement. So I'm just kidding. I'm joking, that was a joke, there is an announcement. No, some of you know, if you don't though, we've been on a journey of trying to figure out how to build a facility, expand what we wanna do. You've probably seen the wall in the lobby, but it's literally been like an 11 year journey. About a year and a half ago, we had a general idea of the price. And of course it went up like crazy. And in February, March, we got bids back and it was kind of sticker shock, like, wow, this is nuts. And so uh, you, you, if you're aware, we did a Miracle Sunday saying, hey, we wanna raise this much, but we also are looking to bring the cost down. And thank God we were able to, based on everybody's generosity, so I wanna th- say thank you for that, raise the 650,000 in cash, which is significant, it's a big deal. But the other part was, Ryan Lawfer and Pete Lasik um, have been working super diligently to bring the cost down, working with subs, uh, general contractors, some business connections we have within the church. And it's taken a while. So there's been kind of this lull in like what's going on. Uh, but the announcement today is as a board, we met Wednesday, went over the numbers uh, and, and thank God they got it figured out. We uh, have kind of letter of intent to the general contractor and we're beginning work. And they said we can break ground somewhere around August 7th. So there you go. Finally. Um, yeah, I don't know who made that. They're uh, going to be fired when we deal with it tomorrow. So uh, just kidding. No, anyway. But uh, yeah, it's, it's super exciting. And I, I just real quick, would you give a shout out? Would you give a hand to Ryan Lawfer and Pete Lacey? They've been working like crazy on that. So no small thing. Um, another thing I want to mention, and we've said it before, and the reason I bring it up, and it's kind of a side note, but it's this. Every Wednesday, we have a prayer meeting from 6.30 to 7.30, and I would love for you to be a part of it. Um, And I say that specifically because I've met with a few people lately that literally saying, hey, I want to learn how to pray. And, and by all means, I love to sit down and talk scripture and talk about what prayer is. But I think one of the most significant ways to learn to pray is be around people who are praying. And so if you're one of those that's going, what does it even look like? How do you do that? Um, you're welcome to join us any Sunday, Sunday any Wednesday um, at 6.30 for about, it's about an hour long, 6.30 to 7.30. And, and we just pray about all kinds of things. And, and if you have personal things you need prayer for, we can do that too. But anyway, Love to have you uh, join us. We are in a series called Off the Rails, and we've been taking on the seven churches of Revelation. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, um, you can go back and listen to these messages because today's part four, but we talked about chapter one in part one and kind of the groundwork for where Revelation even came from and what is it. And then we took on the church at Ephesus and then the church at Smyrna uh, the last few weeks. And today we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And it's the church at Pergamum. And so, um, but the general idea is this. These are churches that existed way back when. They all today are within the nation of Turkey as sort of a boundary or border of where we're talking about. And um, like I said, we'll jump into Pergamum. Let's read the text. I'll pray. And then we'll go through it, uh, through these verses. To the angel of the church in Pergamum. Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. 
Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give to that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus, I pray for all of us open hearts. I pray, God, for some things that maybe are enlightening. And I pray also for your Holy Spirit as we walk through Scripture to bring conviction that we continue to surrender to you and what you want to do with each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the third church we're talking about, the church at Pergamum. And you can, you can always look up historically the, this kind of area or what this city is about. The city was the provincial capital of Rome. Remember, this is the days when the Roman Empire was a huge deal, had spread all over the place. It was the provincial capital of Rome. It was a major cultural hub with multiple religious cults that existed there. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but it had a, a huge world-class library, which back then is a pretty big deal. Nowadays, we hear library. We don't think a lot of it back then. It would have been a huge deal. And on the Acropolis within the city was the Temple of Zeus, uh, which was one of the cults that people worshipped. Um, and so that's kind of the backstory of kind of where uh, what Pergamum is about. Now, let me, let me say this. Revelation always centers around Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that. And, and let me take a sidebar here for a second. If you're in person or maybe you're online, I would encourage you to be a note taker, not because what I say might be crazy profound, but I'm gonna refer to a lot of places in scripture. It's called cross-referencing. There are all kinds of things mentioned here that I'm gonna refer back to numbers, gonna refer to uh, Corinthians, Ephesians, Peter, all kinds of different places places, I encourage you to take notes. It will help you remember, but also a, a simple habit might be this that you could incorporate. Write down the notes and then sometime later today, sometime this week, carve out 15, 20 minutes here, you know, read what you wrote down and then look up some of these verses. It will help you get more familiar with scripture. Talk about why that's a big deal here in a moment. Anyways, um, to the angel of the church at Pergamum, right? These are the words of him, so him, who has the sharp double-edged sword. This centers around Jesus. I mentioned taking notes and here's why. Let me start with this. We open up in Revelation 1 verse 4 with a description of Jesus, him who is and who was and who is to come. Chapter 1, verse 5, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. These are all descriptions of Jesus. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. And in part uh, one, I talked about the whole description and the meaning of each of the elements of the description of Jesus in those, those verses, 13 through 16. 17b through 18, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever. And then chapter two, starting right out in verse one, when we tackled the church at Ephesus, it says, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Chapter two, verse eight, the church at Smyrna, which we tackled a couple weeks ago, the first and the last who died and came to life again. And now in Pergamum, the, uh, him who has the sharp double-edged sword. The reason I say it, and we will never stop saying it, is the cornerstone of our faith is Jesus. 
Jesus is the one that we believe wholeheartedly came to this earth to pay the price for your sin and my sin. There is no other way to deal with the mistakes you've made, the sin you've committed, except through the cross of Jesus Christ. He paid the price. He died, was buried, was resurrected from the dead, proving himself to be the Messiah. He appeared to over 500. The apostles end up giving their lives for faith in Jesus in order that the message of the gospel could be spread throughout the world leading up to even today. That's the cornerstone of our faith and that will never change. Revelation is very much about the work of Jesus. And I will say theologians that are smart, but humble enough for 2000 years will admit a lot of revelation can be challenging to understand. Some of it is very much symbolic. Some of it is very much literal. All of it is very important to at least try to wade through because it does matter, especially when it comes to this idea of what the end times might even be about. However, you do have theologians that have speculated for, for literally 2,000 years on what things could be, and most of them have very often been wrong, honestly, because they probably lack the humility to admit, hey, this is a guess of what this would mean. I'm going to do my best to give you what, what you know, theologians have said, things I've studied, what I believe about Revelation, um, but we do have to hold loosely, honestly, to a lot of what you read in Revelation because it's very difficult to understand. Jumping back to Jesus here, the sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth. The idea of that, if you're familiar with scripture at all, is the, the, the convicting word that challenges our lives and transforms us. It's the cutting truth that brings about transformation. When you hear a sharp double-edged sword in a moment coming from his mouth, the idea is not a picture of a savior literally biting the sword, swiping it back and forth to cut the enemy. That would be ridiculous. The idea of a sword has everything to do with truth. Remember that I just said that. Everything about the church at Pergamum, the anchor to the conversation is about the value of the truth of scripture. Now, the reason it's a big deal is because if you've ever read what Paul says in Ephesians chapter six, in verse 10, he starts in on this picture of a spiritual battle. And then what does he do? He goes into what we call the armor of God, okay? The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and the only offensive weapon in all of the armor, the sword of the spirit. So there it is again, the word of God, which, with which you can extinguish, excuse me, uh, the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so again, at the core of what we have, is the truth of the word that Ephesians 6, 17 writes about. In Hebrews 4, 12, the writer says, for the word of God is living and active. It penetrates to the dividing of joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. At the core, what it means is the living word of God paired up with the Holy Spirit inside of us, when we read it, convicts us, challenges us, gets to the core of those things that keep us from living a Christ-centered life. In other words, when you and I are readers and studiers of scripture, there's something about what the Holy Spirit does that refuses to allow us to continue on on this journey, holding on to sin without being aware that it's destroying us. 
And so for you and I, as we walk this life and we go, God, I struggle to overcome anger. I struggle to overcome an addiction to, to you know, cigarettes. I struggle to overcome a bitterness against someone that I can't seem to forgive. I struggle with pornography. I struggle, and again, you can fill in the blank, with any one of a number of things. We believe wholeheartedly that the word of God Paired with the Holy Spirit brings a conviction about whatever it might be that holds us back from a Christ-centered life so that we're required to deal with it. Hebrews 4, 12, 2 Timothy 3, 16. Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. And here's a list. You should write these down. For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 17 says, so that the man or woman of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We all would say we wanna be equipped. The best way for you and I to continue to equip ourselves is taking in the word of God and letting the Holy Spirit, you know, challenge us about how our lives maybe don't pair up with what the word of God says. And so when it says he has a sharp double-edged sword, we're talking about the word of truth. Verse 13 of Revelation 2, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And he's gonna say that again at the very end of this verse, where Satan lives. If you have a study Bible, which I would encourage you if you don't to, to, to consider getting one, what it typically has is scripture at the top of the page and at the bottom third or sometimes half or a few notes, it'll have some things about what some of these verses mean or some of the backstory to why these verses matter. And in a study Bible that I use, one of the things it says is this, as the center of four idolatrous cults, Zeus, Dionysius, Asclepius, and Athene, Pergamum was called the city where Satan has his throne. It goes on to say, surrounded by the worship of Satan and the Roman emperor as God, the church refused to renounce their faith even when Satan's worshipers martyred one of their members. Standing firm against strong pressures and temptations of society is never easy, but the alternative is deadly. When you go back to what's going on in Pergamum and the issue of truth not prevailing, that was at the core, the problem with the church. The commendation... The compliment that Jesus gives the church is, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So Jesus says to this church, way to go. You continue to stand on my name. That's great. That's good news. And in a culture where with four different cults within the city, groups would gather in mass to worship these other gods. They, they would do all kinds of things in performing to please their gods for all kinds of reasons from crop growth to fertility to you know, blessings on their lives in all of these different ways. And yet the church itself, Jesus admits, feels the pull of a culture that pulls them in different directions, and yet they remain true to the name of Jesus. Can I just say this about the world that you and I live in? 
There are all kinds of ways that we're pulled into things that seem good, things that might seem virtuous, things that might seem okay, and yet they're not true and not healthy and not good for society in general. And we see it all over the place. There's a message coming two weeks from now I'm going to warn you about because you might decide you want to leave the church. But there are things going on in our world that are not okay things that, that we think are sanctioned and, and, and God gives grace to, and yet God says, do not entertain those because they will destroy you. And yet our world goes, hey man, if it feels good, do it. All kinds of ways that look good on a pillow on your bed or a saying on your wall from a store, and yet they're not true at all. There are movies that you watch and when the music crescendos with the actors and actresses, you get sentimental and you buy into lies all the time. We all have a propensity to do that. News reports, song lyrics, you could go on and on about what you see on social media, things that sound so good and so amazing and sometimes they even rhyme. And we go, wow, that's really cool. I gotta remember that. But let me just tell you, we have got to filter those things through the lens of truth. It is so imperative. And yet, as in general, the church is not good at it. Just like the church in Pergamum, this pull to four other cults, this pull to do things that they shouldn't do. Let me continue. It says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual adultery or sexual immorality. L let me take you back. And if you're taking notes, write down Numbers 22 through 24 and 31. If you wonder, what does that even mean, Balaam and Balak, and I don't even know what that means. Some of you might go, isn't that the story of some guy on a donkey and his donkey talked, or I don't know what that is. Let, let me just tell you the story of Balak in general. Here's the cliff, or Balaam, here's the Cliff Notes version. In Numbers 22, the king of Moab, who's Balak, wants Israel to be destroyed. And he realizes there's a guy named Balaam who's a prophet from Mesopotamia that can call curses down from the gods in general to, to nations. And he sends an entourage to go get Balaam and comes to this hillside where he can see part of the nation of Israel. And he says, I want you to curse them for me. And if you curse them, I'll pay you handsomely. And Balaam, his first response is, well, his first response should have been, I won't go. So he refuses. Balak sends another entourage and says, hey, Balak is serious about this. He really wants you to show up. The behind the scenes understanding of these chapters is this. Balaam has an issue of greed. He wants the money he's about to get. Like, you know, he's stoked about this. So that's not in the text. That's just, anyway, so. Um, he, so, so. He goes, I can't go because it's probably not right, but boy, I'd love to have that kind of dough. That, that cash is awesome. And, and so he says, no. And then another entourage comes and the Lord says to him, okay, Balaam, you can go, but only do what I tell you to do. Only say what I tell you to say. And so Balaam says, I'll go with you. And he meets with Balak and Balak says, curse the Israelites. And he says, I can only do what God tells me to do. And just so you know, there's an internal struggle in Balaam because he wants to curse him because he wants the cash. So, um, he goes to the, he goes aside and he prays 
And then he calls out to the nation of Israel, bless you, bless you, bless you. Cliff notes, bless you. Balak is like, what are you doing? You're doing the opposite. He's like, I'm not giving you anything. And he says, tell you what, let me take you to another area where you could see the nation from, from this angle. So he goes to another area. Same thing happens. He goes, I can only do what God tells me to do. He goes away and prays and he blesses them again. And Balak is furious and frustrated. This happens a couple of times. And finally, Balak says to Balaam, get out of here. You get nothing. And Balaam's obviously frustrated and he manipulates certain things and he ends up getting some of the, the, the money he wanted or the stuff that he wanted. As you get to chapter 25, here's what happens. The nation of Israel is given to idolatry because Balak enticed them into believing the wrong thing in order to do the wrong thing. Where do I get that? That's where when you get to Numbers 31, it talks about what Balaam did to tell Balak, look, I can't curse them, but if you want them destroyed, entice them to sin against their God. And that's why it happens. So when it talks about Balaam in 2 Peter 2 and in Revelation chapter 2, the sin of Balaam, that's what it's talking about, Cliff Notes version. Why do I go into the whole picture of that being a big deal? Because the shortfall of the nation of Israel was that they gave in to bad teaching that then led to bad behavior. Pergamum, the church inter, uh, entertained bad teaching, the teaching that was like Balaam, that led to bad behavior. In the same way, listen, for you and I, let me challenge you through the Holy Spirit that there are always things in our lives that we can begin to entertain that are not taking us down the path that God wants us. And it's easy to get off the rails and a train wreck happens and we step back and look and go, how in the world did I get here? And yet the challenge of it is, Lord, would you filter my life through the lens of your truth so I don't end up off the rails? And as a pastor, I feel the weight of this because I study my guts out to understand truth. I study my guts out because I want you to be fed on a day like today. But let me just say this. There are people that leave churches every day of the week, historically, that, that sometimes say, I left that place because I wasn't getting fed. Now, let me just say something. First of all, in the beginning of your journey in Jesus, I get that. But there comes a point, six months, eight months, a year, a year and a half, whatever it might be different for each person, there comes a point where you've got to get to spoon yourself and dip it in the Gerber and put it in your mouth all by yourself. And I know that's super insulting. And you're like, I'm leaving. I get it. Two to the front, two to the side, two to the back. I do because it sounds so terrible, but I would only encourage you with this. You cannot hear what I have to say, walk out and go, that's great. No, 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 no. Acts 17, 11 gives us a great reminder. If you're taking notes, write that down. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they received Paul's message eagerly and they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. That's your responsibility. Pastor, your responsibility is to preach truth. Totally agree. But do you know where incredible cults come from? Bad teaching on stages like this. And I hope to God I never do that. And I bear the responsibility of truth that I feel the weight of in the coming judgment. Trust me. But at the same time, when it comes to you and your marriage and your kids, and people that you care about, you've got to be a reader and study your scripture yourself. 
because there is bad teaching out there. And I've seen all kinds of sermons online that I've listened to at times and gone, time out. I'm not sure there's truth there. Sounds good, but I'm not sure it's true. And my hope would be you're doing the same thing. Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, you're putting up with bad teaching that's leading to compromising behavior. I've said it before this way, and I didn't coin it, but what you believe determines how you behave. It really is that simple. And the church at Pergamum began to believe stuff that was off so that they were enticed to do things they shouldn't be doing. And by the way, that's, that's the issue. I mean, obviously in the Old Testament, but I would say that's the issue even in the New Testament. Why, why does Paul write Romans? Paul's letter to the church at Rome. It's a systematic theology that deals directly with the issue of sin and forgiveness. But it takes chapter after chapter, drawing back from Adam to Abraham, Moses, all the way into the new covenant in Christ. But he takes so many chapters, and then he deals with behavior issues. Why did Paul write to the church at Corinth? Three times historically, and we only have two of the letters in our scriptures, First and Second Corinthians. Do you know, I've said it this way before, the church at Corinth was party church. They're like, hey, let's take communion, and whoops, I accidentally got drunk. Anybody ever done that? I hope not. But they had all of these random issues. They, they had romantic relationships that like, hey, check this out. This is awesome. And Paul's like, you shouldn't be bragging about that. That's terrible. Why does Paul write Galatians, a letter to the churches in the region of Galatia? He writes it to deal with Judaizers. In particular, you go, what does that even mean? Paul would preach the message of Christ and grace and forgiveness through the cross. And then he would establish the church and leave town. And this group of Jews would come in behind him and say, hey, did you guys hear about Jesus? We sure did. Great. It's true. But you know what else is true? You still have to hold to the law. That's why at one point Paul says, these guys say you've got to be circumcised and, and, and you've got to hold the law. I wish they'd go all the way and emasculate themselves. That's not PG, by the way. He says it. He doesn't beat around the bush. The issue was you can't tie the old covenant law to grace in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. The old covenant is obsolete. In other words, there's a new and better way. Most of us understand that what we're talking about is the covenant in Christ. He fulfilled the law. Didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. Over and over, what are they writing about when they're writing these letters? James, the half-brother of Jesus, to a tribe, the persecution, they scattered. And he says, hold fast even though you can't meet right now. Hold fast even though things are hard right now. Be aware of your speech. Be aware of how you carry yourself. Be aware of serving those, that are, those who can't serve themselves. Be aware of what it, what it means to live a Christ-centered life among people that are rich and those that are poor. He writes all this because it's easy to get off the rails. Church at Pergamum, you got some bad teaching which means you're behaving in ways you shouldn't be. And I want to deal with it, he says. That's why he starts with the double-edged sword, the truth conversation. 
Okay, then he says this. Likewise, you, you also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Go back to part two. I talked about this in detail. What do theologians believe about that? It's either probably uh, church leaders that were like on pedestals and, and they were lording over the random normal regular people or it's, it's again this whole idea of given to sensuality and lust and things that were not healthy sexually within the church. Verse 16, repent therefore. Let me just give you a habit that if you're a follower of Jesus needs to be a regular routine for you. We talk about a lot of times and I, I challenge you with maturity all the time. I talk about, and I mentioned it, like reading scripture and studying scripture. We talk about prayer and learning how to pray and what it means to take on, so learning how to worship together, but also in your own world and throwing on a Spotify playlist to worship or whatever. Repentance is another one of those that really ought to be a regular discipline for those that are in Jesus. And I would say to keep it as simple as possible, I would say it this way. First of all, repentance means you're heading this direction and the Lord reveals to you, that's not good, that's sin, that's not healthy. Turn the other direction and go the other way. In, in essence, that's what repentance means. Practically, I would say it this way. At the end of every day, let me just challenge you with this. At the end of every day before you fall asleep, step aside from whatever habits you have and family and things and, and just spend some time alone for a few minutes and go just this kind of thing. Lord, here I am today. Here's my day. Would you just reveal to me stuff that maybe doesn't line up with what you want? And the Holy Spirit might say, hey, the way you treated your spouse earlier, that was not good. Those letters, the four-letter words you used at work that, you know, cuss out the co that wasn't good. Those thoughts that you had, that habit that you keep walking in, those things. The Lord will reveal to you stuff that's off base from what he desires. I really believe that's part of the work of the living Holy Spirit in us. Jesus says part of it is convict us. So you stop in your own little space, wherever you might be at home, on your back porch or in the summertime, whatever. Lord, just show me stuff. And as certain things come to mind, it's just simply, honest, simply this. Jesus would you forgive me for whatever that is? Call it out. Jesus, forgive me for that anger stuff. Jesus, forgive me for, and again, fill in the blank with whatever it might be. And then again, practical but simple. God, I just renounce ties to that. I, I just give up my ties to, I don't want that. I want to go another direction that's in you. I want to stay on the rails in my faith. So practically, that's what that is. And then just, Lord, I just commit to wanting to follow your direction for my life. But, but a habit of repentance. The beauty of repentance is this. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's not a blank slate to do bad things and then get forgiveness later, but it's understanding that in the world that you and I live in, there's a struggle with sin and we can all admit it, okay? But what we do with it is when it's revealed to us, stop and go, God, forgive me. I renounce ties to it. I want to go the other direction. So repentance. To the church that had the bad teaching that resulted in bad behavior, repent therefore. Repent. And, and then this. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There it is again. See, like I said, the core theme for the church at Pergamum is you're entertaining bad theology that's leading to behavior that's keeping you in bondage. Repent of it. But if you don't, I am coming with a sword and it's a sword to cut through the issues, like I said about Hebrews 4.12, and get to what's going on in your heart. Because if you don't repent, you're moving towards destroying your life. If you're aware of things in your life that don't line up with Christ-centered living and you're leaving them there, you're doing yourself harm. 
If you're taking notes, you should write down 2 Peter 2 and Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 12. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, when we repent of something, we renounce it. When it comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house, body, the person in which I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. God, I repent and renounce this stuff. Take it away from me. Clean it out, right? When it sees it that way, then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there and the final condition of that person is worse off than the first. That's how it will be with this wicked generation. The warning of you and I hearing truth but not doing something about it is that if we clean it out in some repentance but we don't fill it with the right things, the certain disciplines that build us up, We'll be tempted to go back to certain things that enticed us. And when we invite them in, we'll be worse off than we were before. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why repentance is so important. Otherwise, the word of truth will we'll clean some house. We'll deal with some issues within because if not, our hearts just become harder. If there, aren't, if there isn't repentance after awareness, there are consequences. says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this comes up in every church in Revelation. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. Don't just hear it in a setting like this and go, that's good. But may it change us. May we commit to a journey of transformation. Be willing to take on those things that build up and edify us and those around us. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. You go, well, what does that mean? Manna back in Exodus chapter 6, I think, what was it? Exodus 16. When the Israelites are in the desert and they're begging for food, like feed us. And Moses is like, I don't know what to do. And God says, I will send manna. I will give them nourishment. Jesus in John chapter 6 reminds us that he is the manna from heaven that he is the bread of life. And when John mentions what Jesus says in Revelation here, it's the reminder that he is our eternal sustenance. He is today and always will be. You go, great, big deal. To me, it's pretty awesome. But then it says this, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You go, does that mean that in eternity, I'm just gonna carry around a white stone? Like, look at my white stone. Probably this is symbolism, but the general idea rewinding about 2,000 years is this. There's a couple of different ways to maybe understand this. One of them being that in, in certain competitions, in certain games, you would receive a victor's crown, which is great, but they would also give a white stone to victors and they would hold up the stone as the, the whole like, like, look, I won, look at this, this is awesome. So it's the idea of victory, but another idea could be this that back in the day in a court of law, when somebody was acquitted, set free, not guilty of a crime, they were given a white stone of acquittal, sometimes with their name on it. Look, I'm free. If they were guilty, they would receive a black stone. You go, well, big deal. And I would only say this, the reason I think it's, it's poignant is simply this. 
with your name on some sort of eternal white stone physically or symbolically, it's a reminder that God knows those that are his. That God has something for you and whatever special name that might be, it's for you and you alone and could never be forged, can never be stolen, can never be taken away, used by somebody else. God knows you and loves you personally and he's acquitted you through the cross of Jesus and it will always be that way. Sorry, but that's super good news for all of us. I want to pray in a second, but at the core of the message, I just want to challenge us with this. We've got to always beware of what we're being taught. Because honestly, there is bad teaching everywhere. I mean, you get people down to rabbit holes of conspiracy theories or, or you know, things that are in the Bible, but they're, they're twisted out of context or I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in our world and sometimes the struggle, even as a pastor, is, God, how do I get to the bottom of this? But can I challenge us to be the kind of people, and I know we say it this way, or you know, I talk about it all the time, but you want to deal with falsehood, you've got to navigate in truth. This is why it's so imperative for you and I to be people that take on the reading of it. And I know some that would say, it's overwhelming, I don't know where to start. I don't, I don't know where to begin. What, what is it going? Last week at the end of our gatherings at about one o'clock, 12, uh, one o'clock, I guess, um, somebody was introduced to me and Ryan and we were talking with him and he basically just said, man, my life is rough and I'm not sure what to do and I'm not sure why I'm even here. And I said, man, can I just share with you? I mean, I'm a pastor, but what we believe and why it matters. And I began to share with him Jesus. And to keep it short, I just said, look, if you want a new start, it's in Christ. And if you wanna pray, I'll, I'll pray and you can just repeat a prayer after me, but that begins your journey in Jesus. That's where forgiveness is found. That's where life is found. He said, I do want that. And I prayed with him and he received Jesus right in our lobby here and it was awesome. And then I said, hey, can I ask you a question? You're not super familiar with church or anything. I said, but do you have a Bible? He goes, no. And somebody was walking by on our team. I said, hey, can you go find me a Bible real quick? Cause we give out Bibles if you need one, we have one. And I said, do you have a smartphone? He goes, yeah. And he showed me his phone. I said, go to the app store and download the Version Bible app. And he did it right there on the spot. And somebody handed me that Bible right about the same amount of time. And, and I, I opened the, the Gospel of John. I said, hey, a good spot to read isn't necessarily just the beginning. A little confusing. I said, but start at the Gospel of John and it's gonna talk about what Jesus has done. And I said, in your Bible app, same thing. And so we went in there and logged him in and got him stuff. And, and I said, John is there. You can read here, you can read there. I said, but, but it's really important for you to read this. I said, tell you what, you right now, just read the Gospel of John. And then why don't we circle back and talk about what you've read? I don't say it to make myself out, oh, look, that's great, really great, it's pretty practical. I say it because I believe it's that important, even for somebody who just began their journey. There is bad teaching all over the place. And honestly, there's times where it's really hard to discern, but I genuinely believe if you and I are students of scripture, studiers of scripture and readers of the Bible, it's a lot easier to discern what isn't true out there. And I would challenge us to be people that lean into it because over and over and over, it brings us to truth. And it was Paul who said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Father, today, the church at Pergamum was getting off the rails because of some teaching that went all the way back to Numbers. And for us today, whether it's within church world, which dear Lord, I hope it's not here, but it can be sometimes. God, for, for churches all over, but for us as followers of Jesus, many of us are, that God, I pray for truth to prevail. 
And I pray that as we read and we understand the grace of the cross and the work of holiness and what you're developing in us and some of the disciplines we talk about, God, help us to walk this journey with you, connected to who you are and what you desire, God, that we're not given to bad teaching so that we're not falling headlong into bad things that lead us into sin. Jesus, we need you. We confess it. And I pray you would reveal for each of us those areas, God, where there's stuff that's off the rails, that we don't want the train wreck. We want to repent and be what you called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.